Shalom friends. Hey everybody, how y'all doing? Welcome back to Access. This is Timothy and I'm happy to be studying the scriptures with you today. Has anybody seen the news and the tabloids on the British royal family over the past year? You know, you got your fashionable Queen Elizabeth II and her late husband, Prince Philip. Uh, you have their obedient son, the Prince of Wales, Charles. And the drama surrounding Megxit and that Oprah interview putting even more strain on the relationship between Prince Brothers William and Harry and their wives Kate and Meghan. I didn't follow it that much. But, uh, <laughs> but for a while, that was all that I saw when I'd flick on the telly or scroll on social media. And all that bickering and feuding, it really left me feeling kind of worn down. I mean, who are the villains? Who are the victims? Why do so many people care so much? Now, I admit, I wanted to understand more about like the titles that each person in the royal family held, and why was Queen Elizabeth's husband called Prince, and how did they move up in rank, and what's the difference between dukes and duchesses, princes and princesses? But my main interest surrounded the brothers, William and Harry. After they had lost their mother, Princess Diana, when they were so young, I, I always wondered what would be next for them. So I started looking into the line of succession to the British throne, and that was generally charted through the firstborn. So after Queen Elizabeth II, you have her firstborn, Prince Charles, who's next in line to take the throne as king, and after him, his firstborn, William. Then all of William's three children are next in the line of succession, before the recently royally separated Uncle Harry, sixth in line, would have had a shot at one day becoming king. I don't want to spend too much more time talking about the royal family today, but what does intrigue me is the current tension between William and Harry, because it reminds me a lot of some of the stories about brothers that's told in the scriptures, and about their dynamic and their familial dysfunction. Speaking of which, I have an older brother myself. Um, we're about five and a half years apart in age, and growing up, I felt like he got to spend a lot more time with our father. You know, they'd go watch hockey games at Maple Leaf Gardens, uh, they'd go golf, they'd they had more common interests and, and of course, with him being the eldest, he was also given a lot more responsibility in our home. Now, I didn't want all those responsibilities, but I did want more opportunities like I believe my brother had. I guess you could say that I was just a bratty, jealous little brother because it seemed that dad favored him more and I spent too many years silently resenting him. But don't worry, we're all good now. I love my brother. He's the best big brother ever. And I thank God for him every day. <laughs> you know, growing up, I loved interviewing my grandparents about their families. You know, and I'd spent countless hours creating these family trees. And I wanted to understand where I came from. And as I listened to the stories of my ancestors, I started to observe patterns emerging. Um, how the choices of a particular generation would affect the next generation and the sort of opportunities, privileges, challenges, and, and even generational curses that each family line had to face. Um, it really put into perspective the way that I'm living my life today and the sort of choices that Bev and I make and living with a greater awareness of how we're setting up the next generation as, as we pour into our children. I really enjoy watching my kids' faces as they hear stories of their own ancestors and they start making all these connections and of the family lines and, and they start to ask all these questions. I really think that more important than any physical, monetary inheritance I could pass on to my children is that they have a healthy understanding of what had come before them, that they have a strong sense of their own identity and that they have a hope-filled 
confident and assurance as they walk their own path. Our study today is called Birthright and Election. If you need a handout for today's Access Learn study, please visit our Facebook group, Connections Ministries of Canada, and you'll find all of our studies under the Files tab. Also visit our website at connectionsministries.com. As we continue our study through Genesis, I recommend having a Bible handy to follow along. And I encourage you to take some time with your own Access Church communities or small groups and review this study together. Now let's get started. Birthright and Election. If you've been studying with me the past few months, you already know the excitement I get from exploring genealogies in the scriptures. It's so exciting to see the family line from Aram to Shet to Noach to Shem to Enoch to Methuselah to Avraham, and, and now we're studying Yitzhak's family. And to see how Jehovah God had kept dividing, electing, and separating the specific line of people, now bringing us to this generation known as the patriarchs, is just mind-blowing. And it reveals so much of who God is and what's important to Him. Today, my wife Beverly will be reading from Genesis chapter 25, verse 19, and through to the end of chapter 26, from the complete Jewish Bible. Here is the history of Yitzchak, Avraham's son. Avraham fathered Yitzchak. Yitzchak was 40 years old when he took Rivka, the daughter of Betuel the Arami, from Padam Aram, and sister of Laban the Arami, to be his wife. Yitzchak prayed to Adonai on behalf of his wife because she was childless. Adonai heeded his prayer, and Rivka became pregnant. The children fought with each other inside her so much that she said, If it is going to be like this, why go on living? So she went to inquire of Adonai, who answered her, There are two nations in your womb. From birth they will be two rival peoples. One of these peoples will be stronger than the other, and the other will serve the younger. When the time for her delivery came, there were twins in her womb. The first to come out was reddish and covered all over with hair, like a coat, so they named him Esau. Then his brother emerged, with his hand holding Esau's heel, so he was called Yaakov. Yitzchak was sixty years old when she bore them. The boys grew, and Esau became a skillful hunter, an outdoorsman, while Yaakov was a quiet man who stayed in the tents. Yitzchak favored Esau because he had a taste for game. Rivka favored Yaakov. One day, when Yaakov had cooked some stew, Esau came in from the open country exhausted and said to Yaakov, Please, let me gulp down some of that red stuff. That red stuff. I'm exhausted. Yaakov answered, First, sell me your rights as the firstborn. Look, I'm about to die, said Esau. What use to me are my rights as the firstborn? Yaakov said, First, swear to me. So he swore to him, thus selling his birthright to Yaakov. Then Yaakov gave him bread and lentil stew. He ate and drank, got up, and went on his way. Thus, Esau showed how little he valued his birthright. Chapter 26 A famine came over the land, not the same as the first famine, which had taken place when Avraham was alive. Yitzhak went to Gerar, to Avimelech king of the Pilishtim. Adonai appeared to him and said, Don't go down into Egypt, but live where I tell you. Stay in this land, and I will be with you and bless you, because I will give all these lands to you and to your descendants. I will fulfill the oath which I swore to Avraham your father. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I will give all these lands to your descendants, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth will bless themselves. All this is because Avraham heeded what I said and did what I told him to do. He followed my mitzvot. 
my regulations, and my teachings. So Yitzchak settled in Gerar. The men of the place asked him about his wife, and out of fear, he said, She is my sister. He thought, If I tell them she is my wife, they might kill me in order to take Rivka. After all, she is a beautiful woman. But one day, after he had lived there a long time, Avimelech king of the Pilishtim happened to be looking out of a window when he spotted Yitzchak caressing Rivka, his wife. Avimelech summoned Yitzchak and said, So she is your wife after all. How come you said she is my sister? Yitzchak responded, Because I thought I could get killed because of her. Avimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people could easily have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. Then Avimelech warned all the people, Whoever touches this man or his wife will certainly be put to death. Yitzchak planted crops in that land and reaped that year a hundred times as much as he had sowed. Adonai had blessed him. The man became rich and prospered more and more until he had become very wealthy indeed. He had flocks, cattle, and a large household, and the Pilishtim envied him. Now the Pilishtim had stopped up and filled with dirt all the wells his father's servants had dug during the lifetime of Avraham his father. Avimelech said to Yitzchak, You must go away from us, because you have become much more powerful than we are. So Yitzchak left, set up camp in Vadi Garar, and lived there. Yitzchak reopened the wells which had been dug during the lifetime of Avraham his father, the ones the Pilishtim had stopped up after Avraham died, and called them by the names his father had used for them. Yitzchak's servants dug in the Vadi and uncovered a spring of running water. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Yitzchak's herdsmen, claiming, that water is ours. So he called the well Esek, because they quarreled with him. They dug another well and quarreled over that one too, so he called it Sitna. He went away from there and dug another well, and over that one they didn't quarrel, so he called it Rechovot, and said, Because now Adonai has made room for us, we will be productive in the land. From there Yitzhak went up to Beersheba. Adonai appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Don't be afraid, because I am with you. I will bless you and increase your descendants for the sake of my servant Avraham. There he built an altar and called on the name of Adonai. He pitched his tent there, and there Yitzhak's servants dug a well. Then Avimelech went to him from Gerar with his friend Achuzat and Pichol, the commander of his army. Yitzhak said to them, Why have you come to me, even though you were unfriendly to me and sent me away? They answered, we saw very clearly that Adonai has been with you. So we said, Let there be an oath between us. Let's make a pact between ourselves and you, that you will not harm us, just as we have not caused you offense, but have done you nothing but good and sent you on your way in peace. Now you were blessed by Adonai. Yitzchak prepared a banquet for them, and they ate and drank. The next morning they got up early and swore to each other. Then Yitzchak sent them on their way, and they left him peacefully. That very day, Yitzhak's servants came and told him about the well they had dug. We have found water. So he called it Shiva. And for this reason, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was forty years old, he took as wives Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hitti, and Basmat, the daughter of Elon the Hitti. But they became a cause for embitterment of spirit to Yitzhak and Rivka. So here in chapter 25, verse 19, the story picks up 20 years into their marriage. Uh, Yitzhak took Rivka when he was 40, and now he's 60 years old, and they still don't have a child. So Yitzhak prays to God for his wife Rivka, who was barren like Sarah before her. And God heeded his prayer, and Rivka became pregnant. 
with not one, but two children. And they start to kind of wrestle inside her and they're jostling around really vigorously. And um, it concerned her. So she turns to Yehovah God and he actually tells her, she learns directly from him that there are two nations that are inside her. And this is like the future foretelling that these two nations will rise against each other and one will be stronger than the other. However, the older will serve the younger. It was a covenant that he was making with her. Now, this was contrary to the customs in these patriarchal times where it's usually the elder son that would take uh, the privilege of precedence in the household. And at the father's death, um, he'd receive a double share of the inheritance and become the recognized head of the family. Now, in the instance where there might have been some grave offenses, um, that would nullify any rights of this birthright, and it would be passed over to another family member um, legally. And that's kind of what's happening in this case. You see, God's sovereign elective purposes didn't necessarily have to follow our human customs. Right. So God declared that this birthright was going to be transferred to the younger son. In verse 24, it's time for the twins to be born. And the first son actually comes forth and he's all like this little um, red fuzzball. He's all covered with hair already. And so they name him Esau because he was completely formed, having all this hair already. Right. And then. As he's birthed out, um, the younger brother is already holding on to his heel. So they name him Yaakov, which means he catches by the heel or he supplants. Now, it would be important to note that some scholars have actually presented Yaakov in a considerably negative light. For example, the Jesenius Hebrew Chaldi lexicon translates Yaakov as taking hold of the heel, supplanter or layer of snares. That sounds pretty bad, right? <laughs> to refer to the third patriarch, you got Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. The third patriarch, referring to him so negatively, this lays the groundwork for future anti-Semitism. However, when we're looking at Yaakov from another perspective, there's a different sort of image that emerges. Now remember that God made this covenant with Rivka, saying that the older would serve the younger. And this is a message that she actually passes on to her son Yaakov. So he grew with this understanding of what the Lord had said. You see, God sovereignly placed the zeal for the birthright and his father's blessing in this young boy. And this detail that Yaakov was hanging on to the heel of Esau, it shouldn't be seen as sinful. It would have been natural for him to hold on to his older brother, sensing that he was now leaving the womb where they were both so comfortable as they developed. Yaakov would be better translated as, May God be at your heels, or may God be your rear guard. The negative attitude toward Yaakov actually came from Esau, when he tells his father what had happened that Yaakov had supplanted him. Right? And we see that happen here in verse 29, where Yaakov is cooking some stew, some red lentil stew, and Esau comes in from the country and he's just like, yo, give me some of that stew, man, I'm really hungry. You see, Esau was a hunter and he was actually Yitzhak's favorite. And, you know, being the firstborn and all, 
and then Yaakov was the more domesticated one, cooking, <laughs> and um, he was Rivka's favorite. So Yaakov takes the opportunity to, to make a deal to get the birthright of the firstborn. Remember, the firstborn rights were assigned to him by God, and maybe Yaakov never really felt entirely comfortable with that idea, so he was going to help God out, and he'd get Esau to openly and finally sell his traditional birthright to Yaakov. So here comes the impulsive Esau, and and since he was about to die, as he claims, he, he might as well just give his birthright to Yaakov and seal the deal with an oath. He says, I'm about to die. That, that wasn't literal. That's more like saying, ah, whatever, who cares? Take it. Of course, since God had long ago settled this issue, in reality, Esau had no birthright to sell because it already belonged to Yaakov. And Yaakov had no need to resort to this sort of treachery in order to obtain the birthright because Yehovah had already assigned it to him. But neither Yaakov or Esau had the faith to accept it as a fact. We're also given a small piece of information here that we'll find useful in the chapters ahead. So Esau is given a nickname, Edom, and Edom means red. And it doesn't only refer to, you know, his ruddy, hairy body features, uh, but also to this infamous incident at the stew pot that had just transpired. So for future reference, remember that Edom and Esau are the same. Okay, the future nation of Edom is so prevalent from here on in the Bible as an ongoing enemy of Israel, and this will also play a role in the end times. So the people of Edom, the Edomites, are simply the descendants of Esau. Keep that in mind. And in verse 34, we're actually told that Esau despised his birthright. Now that's a very serious biblical condemnation of Esau to say that he despised his birthright. It means that he was ungodly. In fact, uh, where is it? Hebrews chapter 12, right? Hebrews chapter 12 in verse... 16. It says, uh, don't be godless like Esau, who in exchange for a single meal gave up his rights as a firstborn. Now, in all fairness to Esau, imagine how difficult this must have been for him. Okay, that Rivka would have told Esau, just like she did Yaakov, that despite the chronological order of birth, that it was going to be Yaakov, the younger one, who was going to have the firstborn rights. Like that must have been a real stinger. For Esau, knowing that from his point of view, his own mother was telling him, the Bekor, that he would not be recognized as the Bekor, as the firstborn. I mean, how else could he have felt than that his mother was siding with Yaakov? Now, this had to have shaped so much of how Esau's life was turning out, uh, making him somewhat bitter and untrusting and cynical. Right, And his father, Yitzhak, was not a poor man. And to think that Esau had no interest in having all the rights and powers of the, of the Bekor, it just doesn't make any sense. He probably saw his losing the firstborn rights as inevitable. So what's the point of even trying to be a good son? It was grossly unfair, and he would have behaved as some sort of brat as though it didn't matter in the first place. And that's exactly how we see things play out here. Ah, I'm going to die anyway. Who cares? What does it matter? What difference is it going to make? 
Now this story, it's filled with lots of little details and little hints that if we don't understand the, the ancient Hebrew culture, um, there's so much here that we might miss. We don't understand the full context of what's going on with this story. For instance, we have this young teenage male, Yaakov, and he's cooking stew. Now typically, this was a woman's task, especially when they were living in villages. It's not that men didn't know how to cook. Um, they would do that, you know, for survival. But traditionally, it would have been shameful under any normal circumstances that a young teenage boy would be cooking. It just wasn't done, right? Let's stop and consider what's actually going on here. The answer might lie in one of these beautiful Hebrew traditions that's part of every observant Jewish family today. It's a tradition that's called sitting shiva. It's part of the rites of mourning the dead. And the ancient Hebrew sages, they're near unanimous that the context for what was playing out between Esau and Yaakov was that there had been a death in the family. And the one that had died was Avraham. How do we get there? Well, another clue that we have is the lentil stew. All right, uh, lentil soup, it's this traditional food that's eaten during this seven-day period of mourning called Siddin Shiva. And any good Jew knows that this is indicative of the period of mourning. Now, during this time, members of the immediate family were not allowed to cook during that seven-day period. And other family members or friends would typically provide the food throughout those whole seven days. Here, Rivka and Yitzhak would have been considered the immediate family members of Avraham. But the grandchildren, Esau and Yaakov, were not considered the immediate family members uh, for the purpose of the mourning rites. So Yaakov, Avraham's grandchild, he would have been permitted to cook. And of course, we find him cooking this meal of mourning, the lentil stew. And why lentils? Well... Lentils and eggs were considered foods that are suitable for mourning. And the thing that these two foods have in common is that they're both round. So the roundness, it actually illustrates this circular nature of life and the cycle of being conceived from nothing and returning to nothing, physically speaking, of course. And it also speaks of one generation dying off and the next beginning in an unending pattern. And the Bible and the Hebrew thought that comes from it, it actually shows us that history is circular. You know, it repeats itself over and over. We see the same patterns that God ordains, established, and, and how it's all woven into the fabric of the universe, just repeating. Isn't that beautiful? So here it appears that Abraham had just died. Yaakov's making the meal and Esau shows up from the hunt. And when Esau comes back, it doesn't seem that he's surprised that his grandfather had just died. Um, he knew full well before he even went out. So rather than being with his family and do his duty to, to mourn and to comfort, especially for his father, he did what pleased his father, to hunt game. Remember that Yitzhak uh, favored Esau because he had a, a taste for, for gamey meat. <laughs> And it's no coincidence that when Yaakov approached Esau with this offer to trade Esau's birthright for lentil stew, how Esau responded with these morbid words, Look, I'm about to die. What use is my right of the Bikhor? Talk about an inappropriate time to be using those words, hey? 
Before we close off chapter 25, let's just look at the character of the twins. And a lot of this is found in verse 27. Okay, and it informs us, the character of each man, that the boys grew and Esau became a skillful hunter, an outdoorsman, while Yaakov was a quiet man who stayed in the tents. Now, only in two places in all the Holy Scriptures is a man called a hunter, a Tsaid. The first man to be labeled as a Sayyid as a means of identifying his character was Nimrod, and the only other is Esau. And as the Bible uses Sayyid, it's a very negative term. It really means a stone-cold killer. And a guy who kills animals for the love of killing and has little, if any, conscience in killing a man. And Yaakov, on the other hand, is called a quiet man, and in some Bibles, a plain man, and in others, a peaceful man. The Hebrew word that's being translated is tam, T-A-M. And while peaceful or plain, it's not necessarily incorrect, it, it kind of misses the point. Yaakov and Esau are being contrasted, and they're being compared as opposites. Tam actually means blameless or not having guilt. It's implied that this is blamelessness before God. It's actually another way of saying righteous. So the contrast here is about one who loves killing versus one who loves life, and one who wanders aimlessly versus one who stays near, and one who slaughters the flock versus the one who shepherds the flock. The last verse sums up the entire episode, where it says, Thus Esau showed how little he valued his birthright. Chapter 26 begins sometime after Avraham's death. We find that there's a famine there, and it causes Yitzhak to go down to Gerar, and he goes to King Avimelech. Now Avimelech here, this is not the same Avimelech that Avraham ran into 90 years earlier. The first words of verse 2 say, The Lord appeared to him. So does this mean that God made a physical appearance before Yitzhak? Well, the Hebrew word used here and normally translated as appearance is vayera. And this word is indicative of divine revelation. And another word for a, a type of divine intervention is very similar. It's vayomer. So vayera for the appearance and vayomer, which um, refers only to divine speech. Um, words, something audible. Now, Vayera is used most commonly um, only in reference to the patriarchs, Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. So this points more to a direct and intense uh, receiving of communication from God. And this sort of communication with the Lord is not questioned. You know, you have visions, right? And that's another form of communication with Yehovah, but um, those are often questioned. And people wonder, so was that God or was it just a dream, right? Or do I understand correctly what he said? What does it all mean? The word form vayera, on the other hand, it indicates this unquestionable and unmistakable contact with God that includes a crystal clear message that could, but not necessarily, include a visual experience. So the word appearance shouldn't be taken to mean that the Lord in some way made himself visible, but it's more of an expression about the nearness of a human to God's presence, Vayera. So here in verse 2, 
uh, Yehovah appears and confirms the Abrahamic covenant with Yitzhak. And he stresses the same three elements, the land, the seed, and blessing. He also makes honorable mention of Avraham's obedient response to all of God's words. And although Avraham was commended for his deeds, the Abrahamic covenant was an unconditional covenant that's grounded in God's sovereign will. In verse 6, we see that Yitzhak settles in Gerar and tells Avimlech that Rivka is his sister for fear that the Pilishtim might kill him and take her because she was so beautiful. Sound familiar? There are so many parallels between Yitzhak and Avraham, like father, like son, I guess. They both go to Gerar. They both tell Avimelech the king that their wife is actually their sister. In this case, however, Yitzhak and Rivka were not even half-brother and sister, unlike Avraham and Sarah. And God didn't reveal the relationship of husband and wife this time. Uh, Avimelech just happened to look out his window and he finds them caressing. And this was indicative of marriage and intimacy. So once Avimelech, a pagan king, um, realized this, he was imposing death on anyone that would trouble Yitzchak or Rivka. And that suggests that God was still at work behind the scenes to preserve his chosen seed. Don't you just love that about God? I mean, we might mess up, we might take matters into our own hands sometimes, but God always wants to make sure that his will is done. And he doesn't always do things so that things work out for us here on earth. You know, but he always does things to make sure that everything works out according to his will and his purpose. I think we all need to learn to trust that a little more and more, right? So more time passes, and in verse 12, we see that Yitzhak farmed some land in Gerar, and he grew richer and more prosperous, becoming a very wealthy man. His efforts were indeed blessed by God, but envied by the Philistine. So these jealous men stopped up the wells that were dug up by Abraham's servants by plugging them up with dirt. And plugging someone's wells was ruinous to them and was seen as a serious aggression that often led to war. Why would Avimelech do this to him? He was so kind to him and Rivka before. He pretty much protected them by putting a death sentence on anybody that would ever bother them. And now here he comes being a bother. But his motive was simply because, you know, it wasn't just jealousy. They, they saw how prosperous Yitzhak was, how blessed he was by God. And he was afraid that Yitzhak had just become too wealthy and too powerful. So he said, listen, man, you've had a good run, but you got to leave. You got to take off. That's why he plugged up the wells. Now Yitzhak could have retaliated, but instead he dug up new wells. He moved to the Vadi, and, which is the dried up riverbeds, and he uncovered a spring of water. His servants just kept digging in the Vadi. And um, this was not what one would expect to find in the Vadi. And when this happened, some of the herdsmen from Gerar said, hey, listen, that's our water. And they end up quarreling over it. So notice the significance of the wells being named for what transpired there. You have Esek, which is quarrel. Then the next well was Sitna, which meant enmity. And poor Yitzhak's servants, They're, they kept getting bullied and moved away from these wells that they dug up. But finally, they moved to this one place, they dig up a well, and there's enough space for everyone. And they didn't quarrel over this one. This one they called Rechovot, which means wide open spaces or room enough. It was named this, they said, because now Adonai had made room for us and we will be productive in the land. 
I love that in verse 22. It kind of echoes back to creation, how God creates spaces and then he fills it. Or how here it's saying how God creates room so that we could be productive. It's like God always makes a way. He always prepares things beforehand so that we can continue to carry out to do what his good will is. In verse 23, it says that um, Yishak goes from there and he goes to Beersheba, where the Lord appears to him. It says, Yehoveh Vayera again. And here God offers some comfort and encouragement with this abbreviated reaffirmation of the Abrahamic covenant, as Yishak had just faced all that envy, the quarrel, and all that hostility. Avimelech and Pekul come to Yishak, acknowledging the favor of God over him. So the, the king, Avimelech, and his friend as a witness, and Pekul, the commander of the army, they seek out a treaty with Yitzhak, a peace treaty. They believe Yitzhak to be superior and stronger than themselves, and a possible threat. Yitzhak, on the other hand, perceived them as hostile, and the outcome was most desirable for both of them, peace between them. So they ratify the covenant with a banquet as they sit at a table and, and share a prepared feast, breaking bread together. And this signified that they agreed to live in peace with one another. So the next morning, Yitzhak's servants dug up a well and found water. And he called that well Shiva, which means oath or seven. And there the city was named Beersheba, a well of seven or well of an oath. Now this is significant as this is the very same place where his father Avraham had made an oath with another Avimelech and Pekul, nine years earlier, when Avraham had named Beersheba. And you can find that story back in Genesis chapter 21. Here at the end of chapter 26, we see that Esau takes two wives, and his choice of wives from among the neighboring Hittite women saddened his parents greatly. And his action had deliberately ignored the standard that was set by Avraham for Yitzhak not to marry a Canaanite woman. And that sets the stage for our next study. Now, I know we've covered a lot today, but before I let you go, I do have just a few notes, and if you have your handout, it's right there in the sidebar. I've adapted these notes from Bible teacher Tom Bradford. Avraham began as a pagan. The world at Avraham's birth consisted of only one kind of people, the human race. Other than genealogical and social divisions, all human beings were about the same in Yehovah's eyes, the one exception being the accursed line of Ham, Noah's son. Once God called Abraham to leave his country and immediate family, he began the process of divine dividing of the world into two groups of people, his people and everybody else. The name we give to God's people, as found in the Bible, is Hebrew. When Abraham obeyed by declaration, God divided mankind into Hebrews, his people, and everybody else. Yitzhak was a firstborn Hebrew. Purely by declaration was Avraham made a Hebrew, but Yitzhak was a Hebrew by birth. As far as Avraham was concerned, Yishmael was a Hebrew until something changed. Just as Jehovah had divided and separated Avraham from his father and brother, he divided and separated Yishmael away from his father and brother and was no longer a Hebrew. Yitzhak, although physically born a Hebrew, it still took an act of God, an election of God, to be declared a Hebrew. By God's design, Hebrew was meant to be a term that 
described a combination of physical and spiritual attributes of a person. The life of a Hebrew, physically and spiritually, was to operate under a set of laws and promises that God made with the first Hebrew, Abraham. A Hebrew's earthly life was to revolve around his spiritual life, and we call these laws and promises the Abrahamic Covenant, and later they were expanded and given to Moses, and are now called Torah. The life of a Hebrew is to walk in Torah. To learn more about why the descendants of the patriarchs came to be known as Hebrews, you can look it up in Joshua 24 verses 3 to 15. To give you a better idea, um, it has more to do with this um, crossing over. And because Avraham first crossed over the great uh, river Euphrates when God called him out, that's and that's where he was called the Hebrew. So it wouldn't be totally wrong to consider believers in Yeshua to be referred to as Hebrews today. Just a thought. Seeing as how we've covered a lot of material today, I'd strongly recommend that you get together with your Axis Church communities, your small groups, your families, and um, just kind of go over the study again and, and slow down the pace a little bit. If you haven't done so already, I'd also like to invite you to subscribe to our podcast so that you don't miss out on any of our studies. Friends, thank you so much for joining us for today's Access Learn study. It's always a joy to be able to get around God's word and learn more about his plan and purposes and about his amazing love and his promises. I'm so glad to see where he'll lead us next. May the grace of our Lord Yeshua and the shalom of God our Father be with all.